Welcome to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast, featuring leadership author and podcaster, Carrie Newhoff, and Barna President, David Kinneman. This podcast delivers unprecedented insights every week into how church leaders are navigating constant change in an era of disruption and discusses new digital tools to help you stay connected in real time to the people in your church. And now, your hosts, Carrie Newhoff and David Kinneman. Welcome to Church Pulse Weekly. It's Carrie Newhoff here, and I've got David Kinneman. David, it's great to uh, be doing another one of these episodes together. Absolutely. Good to see you, Carrie. Good to see you too. And, uh, you know, we uh, had a few technical difficulties. It's funny how you take technology for granted until it breaks. Right. I know. It's so true. We had a power outage, and I think I fried my, I don't know what you call it, mixer or something like that, my Scarlet for any podcaster knows what that is. But anyway, here we are. And we've got Rachel Cruz, who's going to join us in a few minutes, which we're very excited for. She's one of my favorite leaders and writers and thinkers about money because she's so practical and so in it. And so we're going to talk about personal finance, giving, um, spending habits, debt levels, and so much more. But uh, you've uh, you've got some stats you want to share with us as well. I do. Uh, I do. I'm happy to. And um, first, uh, thanks again to listeners. It's been more than a year and a half now since we've been uh, c- coming into your uh, hearts and ear, ear, ear pods and all the rest and um, recognizing that the, the world feels so different. I saw your, your recent post about like 2019 is dead. We're definitely in that new zone of, of recognizing that so much of-, of Yeah. Uh, what do you think about that? Do we need to just declare- all the metrics from 2019 as historic data and move on and start measuring fresh. I think so. I and mean, we've been grappling with that here at Barna uh, when you come to, when it comes to how you measure church attendance, you know, in the, in the past, sort of the gold standard for measuring church attendance was in the past seven days, have you attended a church? And right. so we've had to re rejigger all of those kinds of things about in-person attendance and, and then, you know, sort of like all the baselines uh, have, have been reset um, and I've said this on the podcast, but it's like, I feel like I've spent 25 years practicing for the last 18 months in terms of the <laughs> amount of social change. And it's, it's, I mean, it's not, none of us have enjoyed going through the pandemic and all the resulting change or the political challenges or the racial unrest. Uh, but for me as a researcher, it's been uh, quite a fun experience to see how much can be up for grabs and how, how some things change and some things don't change. And on that note, when it comes to finances, um, you know, we're here to talk today a little bit about, about that, but I want to start with this idea of, of church giving. So especially for younger generations, one of the many ways that they have coped with the financial uncertainty during the pandemic has been reducing the amount of money that they give to church. So they admit that they are doing that. 25% of practicing Christian millennials and 20% of uh, practicing Christian Gen X said in the early days of the pandemic that they had reduced the amount of money they were giving to their church. And for most of those uh, individuals, that has not returned. So what we're hearing from a lot of churches is that giving is staying more stable than in-person attendance. Mm-hmm. But I think there's some just flashing yellow sort of signs on the dashboard related to, to giving. And, and one of them is that giving among younger generations, you know, they're not the majority of the givers at this moment, but the next three to five years, you know, we've talked a lot about the habit forming nature of the pandemic, how it changes the way we orient towards our spending, our money, our giving our church attendance, our leisure habits, our working from home, you know, every workplace virtually is, you know, sort of changed in the last year and a half because it it sort of shows that so much can be up for grabs. Um, You know, sort of people that said, you've got to come into the office to do the work. It's like, that's, that's sort of a, it feels like a a very um, 
you know, an idea whose time has 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 passed now. So um, anyway, lots of interesting things related to, to church giving. Yeah, you know, the one thought, and I want to bring Rachel on sooner rather than later. But while we're going through these stats, I, you know, I think about what Tony Morgan says about the life cycle of a church, and one of the signs pre-pandemic that your church was heading into maintenance mode and out of growth was that your growth was kind of stagnant, but you had lots of money in the bank and lots of volunteers. And a lot of churches go, well, at least we solved the financial crisis and at least we got a lot of volunteers. But he said, that's actually usually a first sign of decline, which is interesting. So I don't know what to do with the fact that giving is generally holding steady. Younger generations are kind of reducing. And obviously there's a volunteer crisis in most churches too right now. But it's funny, it's it's hard to know how to read the scoreboard. By the way, if you're wondering where you can find that article that David referenced, just uh, search 2019 is dead and my name, and I'm sure you'll find it. But that's the argument I'm making is looking at old metrics is less and less helpful. The longer this goes, the more it's just discouraging because you're going to spend all your time trying to go back to where you were, not ahead into the future. So anyway, yeah, really, really interesting finding. What else have we found, David? Well, you know, one, one other just note on, on that is, um, you know, I've spent a fair amount of time in the UK, Australia, uh, and I, I think in some ways what we're seeing in the US, I mean, there's been this argument for a long time that, you know, America's sort of on the slippery slope in terms of social values and attitudes. Right. And, and so, some argue that we're, uh, we're, we're completely exceptional, uh, which, which is in some ways true that the amount of affluence and religiosity and Christian commitment is, com- is completely unique to the US uh, experience. Um, and that's been, been true. Um, what I, what I notice is that it feels to me like we're that the pandemic accelerated this sort of lack of sort of loss of engagement, um, and that we're we're more and more like the UK church, where we just don't have the kind of the people, the programs, the financial resources to to sustain the buildings and all the things that that you know we think are were so necessary before the pandemic. So I think that's an interesting you know we'll sort of see where where things land in the next three to five years, but uh, maybe this sort of accelerates some of those things that push us. Um, that, that, that reveals some of the underlying secularization that has been happening. A lot of good social research is showing that we're actually accelerating, not on the path to Europe exactly, um, to Western Europe, but we certainly have some of those kinds of things that are taking place. So another, another key stat, I'll wrap these two stats together. One is on financial stress and then the other on spending habits. And um, we found in the research that 14% of adults, this was taken just a few months ago, uh, that 14% of adults and 18% of practicing Christians, so that's one in seven adults and about one in every five Christians express that they've experienced substantial disruption to their income as a result of COVID-19. So that's a, a huge number when you look at the absolute numbers, the, the, the tens of millions of Americans who've been affected in a substantial way, the, 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 the millions of practicing Christians who've been uh, affected. Um, 15% of adults uh, today, one, one in seven, report extreme levels of stress related to their personal mm-hmm. finances, uh, spending habits as a result of COVID-19, uh, two in every five Americans, and just about half of practicing Christians said that they paid more attention to their spending habits due to the pandemic. Now, to me, that almost that almost sounds like, well, why wouldn't you? And, and what what's wrong with the other half of people who yeah. didn't pay yeah. attention to their spending habits? But it was especially true of millennials and Gen Xers. Young people were especially um, had to kind of watch watch their nickels um, more closely um, and, and admit, admitted to doing so. Again, I think that's actually a positive thing. Uh, this last little comment is, I think that social research is so so fun and interesting what people are willing to admit, um, you, you know, because again, there's this idea of, 
is it a higher number? Is it in reality, are more people experiencing financial stress? Um, there's some good social research that shows that sometimes financial stress is less about the actual dollars in your bank account and more about your, 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 your posture toward it, towards it. Mm-hmm. You know, like people can have a lot of money in the bank account and be super stressed about, about trying to hold on to it. Some people can or nothing and not be worried. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I think there is such an important role for the church to play in giving people theology, continued theology of money, especially during a time of disruption like this. Uh, And again, young people sort of at the forefront of, you know, these issues and concerns, not that it's, it's an, money is an ageless question, uh, but, but certainly young millennials, Gen Xers are sort of dealing with some of those things. So, so the pandemic hit some families, some households, especially hard, some, some, some people, especially hard. Um, it's not the the universal experience, but a very important sort of conversation we're about to have here with Rachel in terms of what do we make of all this? Well, you've talked about a theology of vocation, which I think is so important. A theology of money is too, and just preaching about money is not necessarily a theology of money. By the way, uh, Barna is doing an Accelerating Generosity Collab. It's a six-week cohort for church leaders that will help you maximize year-end giving. So it's very, very timely, and it will help you activate non-givers and go into 2022 with a more secure and strategic future uh, financially. So you can sign up as always at barna.com slash collab. Use the promo code churchpulse15 for a special discount. That's uh, barnacom slash collab and use the coupon code churchpulse15. Well, I am excited to have Rachel Cruz on this podcast for the first time. She's a two-time number one national bestselling author, a financial expert and host of The Rachel Cruz Show. She has appeared on Good Morning America, The Today Show, and Live with Kelly and Ryan, among others. Since 2010, Rachel has served at Ramsey Solutions, where she teaches people to avoid debt, save money, and budget, uh, and how to win with money at any stage in life. Rachel, it's so great to have you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, any reaction to, we went through like, I don't know what, 17 stats in 14 minutes. I don't know. It was a lot. But any reaction to the broad strokes of what David was sharing, Rachel? You know, it was interesting. I think when when the pandemic hit, I, I remember so well, it was like April of 2020 and it was the complete unknown, right? It was the beginning mm-hmm. of everything. Everything is shut down. And from a financial standpoint, uh, what people were longing for and the information they wanted is, is this going to be a 2008 repeat? Like, a, is everything going to just absolutely crash? You know, the is the housing market going to fall out again? Like, what what is going to happen? And that big question mark you know, was there. And and it's kind of weird to say, though, as we've gone on, even though it's been 18 months for me, that question mark is still there because as you look at the stats from April of 2020 to April of 2021 to now where we're at, you know, towards the end of this year, it is it's still this fluid response. People are still a little fearful. Um, people are there's still industries that are completely bottom out. So people lost their jobs. Just like what you guys were saying that, you know, things were so disrupted and you know, that that 14% of people that were like, yeah, my my entire financial life looks different now um, from an income perspective, probably because they are part of one of those industries. And, and it still is this new normal. We're still trying to figure it out. And so there's that hesitancy, which I think affects a lot of things. I think it affects the the consumer side. I think it affects the giving, all of it. So this is, it's all just, um, it, it, it's still a little bit of that waiting game. And I think people are feeling that. And that's why they're kind of holding their money tightly in, in all areas of life. Well, I'd love your take on this because, you know, you brought me back to those opening weeks of the pandemic. I don't think anyone would have predicted on any level that this is where we would end up, even 
in terms of the economy, I mean, the stock market cratered the most it had in over a decade. Uh, unemployment surged uh, before the government subsidies came in. And, uh, you know, even as David was sharing those st stats, David, I was thinking like most of the business leaders I know who were impacted by the pandemic actually took on more debt. Mm -hmm. Churches didn't, from what I can tell, like just in the conversations I've been in, churches have kind of held steady and if anything, banked cash, right? But that that can lead a church leader into false thinking, thinking that, oh, well, we have more money in the bank at our church, therefore everyone, and clearly some people have a lot more money in the bank. I'm not saying this was an equal pandemic at all, but I wonder how much of that uncertainty lingers because even now, then the housing market went nuts, right? Like who would have predicted a housing boom? I would have thought a housing crash. I'm just wondering what, like in all the people that you talk to and you and the people at Ramsey talk to ordinary people every single day, what are the most common issues you've encountered in the last 18 months? For me, I would say, I think fear is number one. I think people, mm. there's this element that they are frozen and fear, it just it paralyzes people. And so they wanted to, from everything from not invest and pause investing to even cashing out because they were that, they were that fearful um, mm. to not giving like they were giving, um, you know, all of it. And so that, that fear was a huge part and trying to talk people off the ledge to say, hey, go back to what you've always known, because the beautiful thing, I feel like what we hopefully present to people and they can grab on is truth around money. It is biblical principles. And that's the wonderful thing about scriptures. It doesn't change. It doesn't matter right. what economy we're in. It doesn't matter what year we're in, what century, what decade, pandemic or not. You can still have faith that when you apply God's principles, what he talks about in scripture, it still works. And that hope, you know, my, my hope was that that subsides the fear to say, okay, let's continue to do what we're doing. And if not anything for, for us sitting in our seat, I'm like, this proves that God's principles work, right? Cause when everything crashes and hits and you lose your job, yeah, you're going to be freaked out because you don't have a paycheck to go and pay on the debt. You don't have a paycheck to fund, you know, keep paying off Sally Mae. So all these principles of living at living debt-free, living with a plan, having savings and emergency fund, all of these are biblical and so for me, I'm like, guys, it's not a sh it's not a shaming message, but it is a hate. I'm telling you, it works. It works. And so, putting these in place um, is something that is even more crucial today. I mean, I feel my I mean, even my heart just pounds when I talk about it even faster now because it, it it creates this urgency because of the unknown that we're in. But the beautiful thing is, is there's not this unknown with Scripture. The truth is the truth, mm -hmm. and that is something that I feel like I can stand on even more greater today than even before the pandemic. So Barna does a lot of research, but uh, you've done some research as well. And so the Ramsey Group conducted a study on the state of debt that you released recently. Would love to know some of the top level learnings that you learned about debts and Americans. Well, the average consumer or the average American, I should say, has $34,000 of debt. And so what we're finding is boomers are the least, have the least mm -hmm. amount of debts. Okay. Can you define debt that doesn't include like what is consumer debt? I just yes. don't so want to we throw are count that out. Yes. So we're counting uh, student loans, personal loans, car loans, credit card debt, and mortgages. Got it. I think we're the big, yeah, the big sections of the debt in the study. And, and so- Mortgages included in that $34,000 or excluded? Do I? Mortgages of that stat, no, excluded. Excluded. Okay. Yes, of that. But when you look at as an entirety, yes, of, um, of, of the generational differences. And so Got seeing- 
just just looking at each generation and the amount of debt that they have, student loans is still number one for everyone, um, no matter whether you're a boomer, Gen Xer, uh, or millennial. It so is boomers still, still have student loans? Yes, on average, 35000 <laughs> because 35, a lot of them did the Parent PLUS loans where they took on their child's debts uh, and co-signed basically, right? And so a lot of that that risk is now on the parent, the boomers. So it, some of them is their debt from school, but a lot of it is because of that millennial generation that went. And so, and millennials have the least amount of student loan debt. So, so this, that, I mean, oh yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's such a problem in that instance, when you look at the dollar amounts and you look at these generations, and it's something that I think people just um, are comfortable with. I think student loan debt is this lie that we've believed as a culture that you just can't go to school without taking mm -hmm. out loans. So people are okay with that. They're at least okay with the credit card debt and the car loans um, because they're like, oh, they, they feel that friction, but it's almost like this acceptance of the student loan. So they're not in a rush to pay it off. Um, and also because it has lower interest rates. But, 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 but one of my favorite parts of this study that I found that in my line of work that I think is so fascinating is they said one out of four um, consumers that they researched and studied said that they were, they had jealous type feelings, envy, if you will, for people that had debt-free lifestyles. Hmm. And they had that more than being envious of cars, stuff, or vacation. And so hmm. I loved when I read that because I thought, man, you know, there is something to be said about keeping up with the Joneses. I think that that's like, you know, the term that will forever live on. We will always, there's an element of us always comparing ourselves to what people have and what their lifestyle is. But it, it, it gave me a little bit of a refreshing where I was like, okay, so the idea of not having stress, not having financial risk and being debt-free is, is getting more and more appealing than just the cars that are sitting in the driveway or the vacations that are posted on Instagram. So, so there was a little bit of glimmer uh, and, and the, debt, the debt levels, all of it has been pretty consistent over the past few decades. Nothing, nothing major you know, spiked up. Um, obviously, student loans are still on the rise, but, but I find that fascinating that people's perspective on seeing someone, oh, wow, they're debt-free. They have less stress, maybe not all the stuff, but they envy that type of lifestyle versus the latter. Hmm. That is encouraging. What trends did you see across generations? Big differences between millennials, Gen X, boomers? Honestly, not a ton. I mean, the, the it's, again, when you look at the graphs, it's student loans are still number one, car loans are number two. And then credit card debt is there uh, as a third for all three generations that were pulled. Um, so it is, it, it, it's, it seems like, you know, it's funny because it is so normal. It, the consistency across all the generations are pretty much there. Uh, not major dollar amount swings. Uh, I think it's a $2,700 difference between Gen Xers and millennials on debt level. I mean, so it's not, it's not this, it's not this huge gap. And so for me, I want to, I want to just shake that up because I see we're just learning. We're not, we're not learning from our mistakes, right? It's kind of like this repeat lifestyle. And it's just, it is, it kind of feels like it is what it is. And I'm like, man, if you can get in there and just, whether it's a generational idea of a mindset change um, or a cultural idea of a mindset change to say, man, this could, this could look so different. This could look That's so a lifestyle, right? It's just a lifestyle now. Yeah. This is, this is just what you do and this is how you live. And you have a right to a credit card out of college and you'll keep it until you're a baby boomer. And the whole deal. Any insight, either anecdotally or statistically, on the emotional impact of the financial situation in America? What's saying? Well, the, yeah, the stress level obviously has has risen. 
yeah. um, majorly and people and people freezing. I mean, the fear we kind of talked about earlier is is part of that. And so seeing um, seeing that stress on all generations and they kind of all react in a very similar way. And that is that they, they pull back from savings. The savings rate went down. Uh, the credit card debt went up. And as you guys said earlier, the giving, you know, went down. And so it's, um, it, it is something that is, is so, it is so real. It's part of our human condition, right? Money is a tool and some people use it, worship it, right? It be, it's the end all be all for them, uh, which is unhealthy. And then some people are just fearful of it in general and don't want to touch it. But the moment that that foundation starts to shake uh, and you think, man, this one thing that I feel like I could have depended on is now has a big question mark around it. And I don't know what to do you see that scarcity mindset just play in again, grabbing hold of that money, not saving, not giving, and even wanting just to hold on to some cash, if any, and just charging even lifestyle and credit cards because they'd rather have the debt feeling than losing cash. So, so you see that cycle. And again, it was very similar habits that we saw in 2008 as well in the recession. Hmm. So interesting. Um, one of the things we've studied quite a bit on is, um, you know, kind of the that you you referenced this earlier in terms of college debt, and when we interview twenty somethings, there's this notion that they they are hesitant to sort of get married or start start a life until they're sort of more financially set, which is an interesting sort of um, putting the caboose before the engine, right? Because in some and, and for some people, they're called a singleness, or there's obviously reasons why. Um, some people get married or some, some people don't, but uh, marriage is such an incredible way of, of building wealth and, and, you know, cr- cr- sort of cr- creating uh, financial security. You don't have to, you know, get financial security in order to be married. So there's there lots of interesting things there. I wonder what sorts of issues you're sort of seeing and, and interacting with how any of that sort of changed during the pandemic. If you've heard, whether it's on marriage or school debt, um, you know, sort of school loans, like, are you seeing any kind of positive movement, especially among younger people, towards um, how to think about these bigger questions of of you know the stages or sequencing or the dominoes of life. Well, I'm I've seen the exact same studies that you just quoted. I mean, we are finding that millennials specifically they're not purchasing homes, they're not getting married, and they're not having children. And a, a big part of that is because of their finances. That's what they say. And, and I'm like you, I'm a proponent. I'm like, listen, wherever you are, have a baby, even if you have debt, because it's your, it's a baby, have the baby. You know, if you want to get married, get married. You're not going to, there, there's this mindset that I want to clean everything up before I start my life. And there's, I mean, an element of that's noble. I understand, I get, you know, intellectually why people would say that they want to feel a little bit more secure before they go and change into this whole new season of their life. But it's never, you're never going to get there. That's the thing with money. You can be this rat in a wheel where you think I'm going to feel secure and feel secure. And then, you know, you feel like, okay, now I've paid off X amount of debt. And that's when I said I would get married. But now I want, I want, I want to get that raise at work first. You know, like it never stops. So you have to live your life. And again, I correlate that all to fear. I mean, they're just, Mm. they're paralyzed. They're frozen. They're not making decisions based on what is best for them in this time of life. I mean, you can, you can still get married. You can, I mean, buying the house, that's the one little asterisk I would say, yes, hold off, you know, until you have certain things in place financially before you do that. But when it comes to just living your life, you know, they're, they really are, they're, they're frozen. And and two, we're finding in the job market, some of them that have jobs that they hate, that they don't feel called to, they're still staying put because of the income that they're making and they don't want to make a change. So it is, it's, it, it is this, underlying fear that is motivating so many decisions. And it, it is, I'm not, I'm not seeing a huge trend the other way, sadly, if anything, it just has continued to be steady and, 
And I think two people give a nod to, well, they're having kids later, they're getting married later, all of that. And sure, I guess that's statistically correct. But the fact that those decisions are based on a financial standpoint is, is it's hard. I, I, I don't like to see that. Yeah. What do you think church leaders can do? We've got mostly, you know, church leaders who listen in on this. Um, we talked at the beginning, you know, sort of this one in, one in seven uh, Americans who experienced significant financial disruption, one in five practicing Christians. Um, you know, what would be ways that pastors, leaders could be talking about money and the financial impact of this pandemic? What are some themes that you'd like to see leaders talking about uh, more, more holistically or in any way? Yeah, I mean, I think acknowledging it um, is huge because it is a stress point. So whether it's right or wrong, how we got there, how we didn't, you know, when you can't pay your bills, you're losing sleep at night. You know, when you mm-hmm. think I haven't, I'm, I have, I'm working four part-time jobs just to make up because of the salary job I had, I lost. It's stressful. I mean, it is, it is something that is, um, it does, it affects people. So I think the acknowledgement of, hey, that, that it is a heavy burden that, that Americans are carrying and just trying to survive month to month. Um, but also I think pushing into the uncomfortable topics of money, just in general, you know, a lot of people, they, they, um, they don't want to talk about it from stage. They don't want to talk about it, um, on a Sunday morning, but that is, I think a way to love your church so well to, again, speak into the truth of what God says about money. I mean, there's more scriptures around money than heaven and hell combined when you see it. So it's an issue. So to me, I'm like, yeah. Jesus talks about it, right? He, he, he knows this is going to be something that we're going to struggle with. And so diving into those topics and, and helping people see, yes, this is an issue and it is a stress point, but here are things and even practical things that you can do to get yourself in a position where money doesn't rule you. And that's the problem is money is controlling us in so many ways in our culture today. And to reverse that and to say, it's not a God, it's not the thing that's telling me I can actually be in control of it. And the moment you start to do it, I believe the the better stewards you are of what God has given you. And it's this positional change as well, this mindset that I'm a manager for what God has given me. And if I'm sloppy with this, scripture says he's not, he's not going to give me more to manage because I'm I'm terrible at managing it now, you know? So so to say, okay, how do we steward this well? How do we manage this well? And not just for the good of you and your sleep at night, but honestly for the kingdom of for the kingdom of God, like what we can do, the money and the resources that we can do to help change literally the world around us with just dollars. It's an amazing thing. It's not the end all be all, but what this can do um, can help so many people. So we say around Ramsey Solutions all the time, what could the people of God do for the kingdom of God if they were debt-free? Hmm. If everyone just paid their car payment, or, I'm sorry, paid, yeah, gave, gave their car payment every month instead of it to the bank, to the church, like what, what things would change? Um, and so it, it's a powerful tool for us to use for good. Well, as the uh, guy in this conversation who preached for over two decades, I can tell you that fear is not just in the lives of the congregation. I had a really hard time coming to terms with even how to talk about money other than, and this is the crutch I think a lot of pastors get into, I will talk about money when we need it. So during the offering, during the building campaign, during the initiative of the project, we talk about money, but every time we open up our mouth and talk about money, and I say this as someone who suffered from that until I figured out a better way. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, give me it. Come on, Rachel, step up. David, step up. I need you. And then, oh, you're not giving, whatever. By the way, just shameless plug for Rachel's latest book. It's called Know Yourself, Know Your Money. 
tons, like dozens of pages of great insights that you can actually just preach right in there about the psychology of money. Hundreds, actually, if you look at it, because it was all devised around common objections. If you want insight into the challenges that the people in your church are looking at, get the book. It's fantastic. But now I want to uh, tackle a, a subject that you and, and the people at Ramsey Solutions have tackled probably every week for decades, but I want our listeners to hear it. Somebody comes to you and says, we're, we're tight financially. You know, We bought too much car. We bought too much house. We, uh, I didn't get the raise. I didn't get the promotion. I'm going to cut back on my giving, which is what most people started to do, or some people started to do at the beginning of the pandemic. What is your advice to someone who comes to you and says, I can't afford to give at the level I was giving, or I should cut back on my tithing, get my finances in order, and then I'll give again, and then I'll be generous? This is uh, this is a hard one because my my answer is always a pretty blunt. And if you you know my personality, I'm like my dad is like the hard blunt uncle of of the of the Amer- of America. I feel like I'm like I'm your friends, okay? So I want to walk with you. But the blunt statement and the truth is, I really believe giving is not a math issue; it's a heart hmm. issue. Hmm. And so when you look to see, yes, are people living paycheck to paycheck, and they feel like if I can cut out giving, I'll have more. Dollars. Well, of course, mathematically speaking, yes. But the condition of giving is so much, so much with the heart. And I'm like, okay, is is Comcast getting paid? And you're not giving? You know, it really does. It shows you when you when you give, it is. It's a picture of your heart. And people, it is this closed fist mentality. If I can just control what I have, I'm gonna cut back and I'm gonna just, I'm gonna hold this fist so tight hold onto it so tight. That's the, that ends up being the position of your heart. And the lie is that I really think the enemy sits there and and pokes at you to say, if I just had more money, I would give. If I just had more money, I would give. And I love John D. Rockefeller. He said, I never would have been able to tithe the first million dollars I ever made if I didn't tithe my first salary, which was a dollar and 50 a week. And so my argument to people is that giving, it, it, it has to become a habit no matter where you are financially. And so as big of a proponent as I am of paying off debt and getting an emergency fund in place and you know setting yourself up well, giving is still the number one line item in your budget. And I teach that every single time because it changes you. When you give, you start to move on the spectrum of yourself from selfish to selfless. And I really believe selfless people prosper in life. I mean, selfless people are better spouses. They're better parents. They're better team members. They're better pastors. They're better sitting in a congregation. When someone is selfless, they have, I really believe, a fuller, richer life in the depths of who they are. Because, I mean, I always give the example, too, of just even a conversation, right? Like, take money off the table. But when you go to dinner with someone... And the entire dinner is about them. I think, I think we've all had these dinners. And you're like, wow, I don't think they asked us one question or they don't know <laughs> yeah. anything about me, but I know everything about them. And you're kind of just like, oh, you know, it just kind of feels it's off. But when you sit down with people and they engage you, they actually look you in the eye. They actually ask questions and they want to know. You walk away feeling loved. You feel cared for. And so that's a that's a model for me of someone that is selfless. And so when you go back to the dollars and cents, the tactical side of giving, what I really believe that does is that that pries open your fist. It gives this open hand mentality and it changes your heart. It changes who you are because we are created in the image of God. It is so in Genesis that we are created in his image. 
And he is the biggest giver of us all, right? Giving us his son so that we can have relationship with a perfect and holy God. And so if we're made in his image, we are created to be givers. So when you are giving, even if it's not a lot, and I tell people that, even if it's not a lot, be giving something because what starts to shape in you, you, I really believe you become more and more Christ-like. And I don't want to be legalistic about it or, you know, I, again, I, I hate legalistic stuff. So I'm like, there's a lot of grace in this. There's a lot of grace and people are having really tough times. But my plea to people would be, do not stop giving. Even if you have to lower the amount a little bit for a little bit, okay, you can do that. But continue to give because it really does. It, it's, a, it's a posture of your heart and your spirit. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I found in my own life, Rachel and David, that the biggest antidote to greed, because greed is really hard to see in the mirror, but I know I've got it. Like, it's just generosity that when it hurts a little bit to give, when you're like, ooh, that, that's, that's, you know, and it depends on your income. You know, when I started out as a student, it wasn't a whole lot, but it still hurt. And these days, I want it to still make me think twice, go like, hmm. But, you know, otherwise I'll spend it on me. I promise you hundred percent. I'll find something to spend it on. Me too, Gary. I'm like, I'm yeah. guilty of that hundred percent. Yes. Oh yeah. So it's a one line item on the budget that if it's sacrificial, it's like, okay, I'm dying to myself there, which I think is a good mm-hmm. discipline. Uh, a lot of pastors struggle with getting Gen Z now and certainly millennials on board with giving. You've got the elder generation who like you know, very generous. They give out a duty. Uh, you've got boomers who are generous. Gen X, to some extent, is probably in most churches of leaders listening, the economic engine of their church. But everyone gets a little bit nervous around millennials and Gen Z. Have you got any advice for pastors on how they might talk to those next generations who basically are everybody between 20 and 40 now in your church uh, about giving and, and where you've seen some success, some track record of generosity there? Yeah, you know, those generations, I feel like, are the ones that are the most um, socially aware and socially conscious, right? They're, they're the ones that want to buy coffee from someone that's going to be giving to Africa, right? I mean, like, they're, they're a right. little bit more of, of that fluid. So I, I, I would say as, as transparent as a pastor feels comfortable from stage— to explain what you're doing with the giving. I think it's scary for a younger generation to say, I'm going to just give into this black hole that I have no clue what it's going to. Is the pastor just hoarding it all and he's taking it home? You know, you see all this like craziness, you know, on social media or like, you know, you, you know, certain people in your head, you're like, oh yeah, he's getting a private jet. That's what he's doing. You know, he's hoarding all this money over here. Um, but it, so if they know what you're giving to, in my church, I'll give them props, does a beautiful job of this. I mean, they have certain things. Foster care is one of their big initiatives. And they talk about how they tithe the tithe. So when the giving comes in, 10% of that, they, it's a single mom ministry within cars. It is within the foster care system here in Tennessee. I mean, they have specific lanes that you know where your money's going. And so for me, I guess probably because I grew up in this bubble, maybe financially, that I'm like, I'm okay if my money goes to pay the pastor's salary. I'm great if it's going to pay the light bill to keep the lights on. Like, I want the church to function. I love the local church. So for me, I don't have an issue with that. But the, but the people that I've been talking to or that I, you know, that I, that I am interacting with, it's this unknown that I think is a little scary. So for pastors, I would say as transparent as you can be of what the money, where it's going and what it's doing, the budget and what it looks like, um, I think will help ease some of that, give, give some peace to that. And on a very tactical level as well, um, 
setting up things that are easy for them to to give, right? So like mm. there's no more passing the offering plate and writing a check. Like that's what I, yeah. those are my memories yeah. of hey, church growing up. Hey, checks out post-dated too. It's like, sorry, what's a check? Yeah, that's oh. right. A hundred percent. Yeah. So having some easy ways for them to practically give, I think is helpful. I mean, obviously, you know, whether it's an app online, whatever that looks like, but making it on a tactical basis easy um, for them to get in that rhythm, I think is helpful as well. I have been in places. I'm so glad you you raised that because that's something we started focusing on about a decade ago at Connexus Church, where I'm founding pastor. And you know, in the last five years, I've been in places where I wanted to give, but I have no cash. I don't have a checkbook, you know. And I'm like, well, I can't. And then by the time you're in the parking lot, you forget about it. So often we assume it's intent. We assume they don't want to. But people don't carry cash and they don't write checks. And uh, if your website is like 17 steps to give online, they're going to quit at step two. So how do you make it easy for that, I think, is a really good question. Pastors are also struggling financially a little bit in this season. Um, It's been hit hard because we do have the social media stuff where it's like, oh, look at the guy with the Lamborghini and whatever. Uh, That's like 0.001% of pastors. Most pastors are probably underpaid or adequately paid, um, and it's a struggle. So what would you say to pastors who are feeling financial pressure themselves in this season? What would be one or two steps? Because I've lived with margin and without it. Uh, I remember how tense it was without margin. It's awful. And how much better it is with margin. So what would you say? Because you know, winning the lottery is not an option and you're probably not going to get that uh, huge salary. Uh, how do you live with margin in a case like that? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And I think what's interesting, you know, you can talk, I can talk to, you know, a teacher making a teacher salary or a pastor, you know, maybe that makes a similar dollar amount, but the mindset is so different. And I think for some pastors, um, they don't even engage the subject within their church, but they also don't engage it in their own personal life. Um, because money is scary, right? I mean, there's so many warnings about it. I mean, we're all aware of it. And so I would say though, is what you can do to step in to your own personal household and take control over that is going to provide that margin. And so practical things, I mean, even just like a budget, right? And I would say this to a teacher or a pastor, but it is amazing how many people they just, um, they don't, they month to month. It's like they, they don't, they pay the bills and then that's about it. And they have no clue where their money's going. And so as diligent as you can be, you know, it says in the Old Testament to know the state of your flocks and your herds, know what you have and just living intentionally on a budget is going to feel like you got a raise already and to be able to set yourself up well. So, I mean, that's a very practical step, Carrie, but it is one that I would tell anyone because, because again, when you don't know where it's going, it is so hard to control it. And so as much as you can say, okay, here's where every single dollar is going. And that may mean, hey, you look up and and it's like, God, oh, we may have to we may have to cut things here for a little bit, um, cut some of the lifestyle, or maybe you you have more than you realize, and you just don't realize how much is leaving here and there on the spontaneous giving, you know, throughout the month. You don't know, you don't know until you know. So as much as you can, controlling every single dollar is going to give you a level of peace and a practical, tactical game plan to know if the income is too low and the expenses are too high. Hmm. David, any final thoughts or final word as we wrap up? No, it's been so fun to uh, get to interact with you today, Rachel, and um, appreciate all that you're doing. And you know, especially, I feel like the practical side of helping, um, you know, my heart for millennials, Gen Z, you know, this generation that the church is in some ways sort of left behind. And, and it, it 
you know, it gets left behind in, in some of these very practical things like marriage and ch- childbearing and and money and and you know, trying to give them practical tools to 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 do this now in this, especially in this new world. And then and then I see it with my own with my own kids, uh, 22, 20, and 17, uh, I feel like getting them out of, through college, I feel sort of like that was going to be my, you know, sort of the finish line, but now it's like, Oh no, I really need to try to help them through their, I mean, you're never done being a parent, but like just the notion of helping to get them, you know, settled into their, their real lives, their non-student lives is such an important part. So I'm just feeling a lot of those things. And the, and the pandemic has shaken some of those things to the core for me. Um, you know, what it means to, be a good parent, to be a good giver. And I'm sort of listening to this, both listening to your, your answers, both from the perspective of, you know, what we can do to help leaders and church churches, but also like, what does this mean for, you know, for our household and other households that, uh, you know, that I care about. So thanks so much for joining us today. Mm. Highly recommend Rachel's latest book, Know Yourself, Know Your Money. It's got lots of practical things. And actually it works on the personal level. Like if you're trying to figure out your personal finance, but also it's got a lot of practical examples and strategies and um, content. If you are looking for something to fill a sermon that is more than just, hey, give us your money, um, you're going to find that really, really helpful. Also, a reminder, leaders, about the generosity collab that Barna is putting on. It's six weeks. We'll get you ready for year-end giving. We'll get you set up for 2022. It's practical. It's interactive. And if you want in, you can get a discount by using the coupon code CHURCHPULSE15 and going to barna.com slash collab. That's barna.com slash collab. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Church Pulse Weekly. If you enjoyed it, listen uh, again by subscribing, share it with a friend, I'll let Rachel and David know uh, that you appreciated it. And we'll see you next time on Church Pulse Weekly. Thank you for listening to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast. Join us next week for more insights on navigating constant change in an era of disruption and how to stay connected to the people in your church.